Christ, the song that we just sang was all about your wisdom, your beauty is the desire of our soul, our commitment to you who has redeemed us and called us into fellowship with yourself and with the Father and who has showered us with your love, who has given us, who have given us every promise in your word and keeps us by your spirit. We thank you for the wonders of the new covenant that we are partakers of. We ask now that as we open your word and we hear you speak from the written pages of scripture, that you would, by your spirit, give us a a clearer sight of your glory. Give us a, a clearer sight of your beauty and capture the affections of our heart. Help us to be renewed in our mind. And we pray that in all of these things you would be doing that work of conforming us to your image and that we would then greater reflect that glory to this watching world. And even as we remember our present and coming relationship with you and the supper that you have established, prepare our hearts for it. We thank you for gathering us this day and we pray in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as you know, last week we finished up uh, a few weeks of looking at loving confrontation. Now, I looked at the, actually the messages afterwards and I thought, you know, that could look like, you know, I love confrontation, you know, loving confrontation. But actually it was how to give confrontation in love. I don't think anybody was confused on that. But I did think if you were just looking at that title, it could be a little bit uh, confusing. We don't love confrontation, but we do know that it's necessary. But anyway, we finished that up last week, and now we're going to begin another brief series. I hope to finish this in two messages. As a matter of fact, I will commit myself by intention to finish this up in two messages, and then we'll begin our our next topic. Uh, But what we're going to look at over this week and then in two weeks, next week, Pastor Bigelow, as long as we have him, remember to pray for uh, Pastor Bigelow and Dina that today is the vote uh, for the church uh, out in Colorado Springs. And so we want to remember the, uh, them just in their patient waiting on the Lord and their own wisdom and how they respond uh, to that vote. So remember them in prayer. But this morning I want to begin what is going to be two parts, this week and then in two weeks, uh, namely looking at another part of body life, and that is unity. The unity that we have in Christ and the unity that we have with one another uh, by the Spirit. And so this is going to be broken up into two different messages. This morning is going to be a... An introductory message in very broadly looking at the theology of unity. What is the foundation and the grounds of our unity together? Namely, it is the unity of the Father and the Son and the unity that we share together as those who are united to the Son and also in fellowship with the Father. That's using the language of not only the New Testament, but particularly John, which is where we'll be focusing our attention this morning. And then in two weeks, we'll look at the practice of unity. So this is really establishing the foundation of that unity, and then looking at what Scripture says about how we maintain that unity, how that unity that we have in Christ fleshes itself out in our lives as His people. I want to begin and introduce the idea of unity uh, that we share by just reminding us of the unity that is established among all people by the very act of creation. In other words, there's a certain unity that we share simply by being human beings who are made in the image of God. So the idea of man being one, the sort of connection that we share, is broadly and foundationally related to, just at a human level, to being made in the image of God. To being created in his image. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God and also became our first parents. And they uniquely demonstrate this kind of unity of humanity. Again, not only because they're made in the image of God, but also in chapter 2, they came together as husband and wife. And they were, by that union, one flesh. It says the two were made one flesh. And that is, as Paul said, indeed a great mystery, ultimately anticipating God's own covenant relationship with his people. But also from that union came everybody else. Every other human being came from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And, and even from that, there's an inherent sense that humanity has of being united together. 
And that really comes because we all are from the same parents, Adam and Eve. At the Tower of Babel, you'll remember, after the flood, men united in their rebellion to make for themselves a name. But as they united in their rebellion against God, even the Lord himself said they came together as one people. They were one people. And so he brought the judgment of confusing languages, which divided them up. And yet they are identified even by God himself as having this sense of unity. This sense of unity by virtue of their being made in his image. Throughout the history of the world, those who stood as great conquerors, the list could go on and on, ones we're more familiar with, Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and so on, they had the idea of uniting the whole world under their rule, that they were going to establish, essentially they wanted ultimately a kingdom that spanned from uh, all of the known world at that time. And the kingdom of the Antichrist will have as its end a uniting of the world under his power and under his name and under his influence. So that's the idea of unity, how it works out at least within fallen humanity. But there is a right kind of unity, of course, and a good kind of unity. And really that was begun to be reflected, of course, in God calling out a nation who would be his son, uniting them as the people of God, the the twelve tribes of Israel... But there was a a greater unity even than that that was begun at the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you remember that the gift of the Spirit came and there was this speaking of tongues. It was really essentially a reversal of the division that came about in the Tower of Babel. There was a uniting of the many peoples under the name of Christ to Christ to be the one body of Christ in Acts chapter 2. And so the glory of the church and the mystery that was revealed in the new covenant that there is Jew and Greek together in the one body of Christ. And that becomes the unifying reality of the people of God. That we are in union with Christ and we are a part of the same body of Christ. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter where a person comes from, nationality or any other kind of human division. In Christ, we are all one. Now that, of course, verse is wrongly used by many who try to Eliminate any distinctions of relationships such as headship and male and female and, uh, within marriage or within the church. That's not Paul's point there. He is saying that spiritually in relation to our participation in the redemption that God has provided in his son, we all stand on equal footing. We're all one in that sense in Christ. And again, indeed, this unity is shown in a variety of ways throughout Scripture particularly in the different metaphors and descriptions of the church. You're well familiar with these. Let me just list off several of them. Again, you know them. We won't look at the passages. We are referred to, as has already been mentioned, as the body of Christ. The body of Christ. We are referred to in Ephesians 2 as a building in God's households. In 1 Corinthians and Romans 12, we're referred to as members of one another. We're described as being members of one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, where he says we're many members in one body. And in 1 Peter, he says we're living stones being built up into a spiritual house. There is the idea there of plurality and yet unity. There are many stones and yet there is one house. There are many members and yet there is one body. So though there are many and yet we are, as the people of God, one in Christ Jesus. Another way, even in some ways more intimate than those pictures, is the idea of our being adopted into God's family. In other words, then we are brothers and sisters and we have mothers and fathers spiritually in Christ. In Christ. Because we share in the spirit of Christ, we are united to him in some mysterious way. But such that we are called then the children of God. The children of God. In Ephesians 4, he says that we share the same Father, we share the same Spirit, we share the same hope, we share the same salvation. Everything we share together as the one people of God. 
So the idea of unity, of being un, uh, together, of toge- being the one people of God, as being intimately involved with one another's life and sharing a spiritual relationship with one another that is in some ways, in many ways, mysterious and yet real, is at the very heart of the new covenant and at the very heart of what it means to be called a Christian. If we are a Christian, then we are one people of God in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of places we could go, and we'll look at some more next week. But this week, I want to focus our attention on one particular passage in which this unity, the foundation of this unity, is most clearly established. And so this week, as I mentioned, we'll look broadly at the theology of unity before we look at the practicalities of it uh, in two weeks. But the passage I want you to turn to is in John 17. So you can go ahead and flip over there to John chapter 17. We'll spend the bulk of our time uh, this morning there. John 17. And we'll be looking particularly at verses 20 through 23. Particularly verses 20 through 23. Now while you're turning there, I would just note that there is a great deal of theology here. But I'm not going to use a lot of the, or even explain a lot of the technical theological terms that could, are associated with this idea of unity and are indwelling with one another, with Christ and all of those things. I want to simply establish as basically as possible, as even as broadly as possible, but hopefully in a helpful way, the unity that we share with God in Christ. The unity that we share, I should rather say, together as being those who are in Christ. Now, Of course, no matter how simple you try to make things, because God is infinite in his being and infinite in his majesty and because these are truths that are really in many ways beyond our ability as just humans to fully comprehend, there will be things that are mysterious to us. But nonetheless, Jesus lays out for us in John 17 some of the most glorious truths related to our unity together in Christ. So let me begin by reading the passage and then we'll look at it more closely. So we're going to jump right into, well actually let's begin in verse 16. And just for context's sake, I'll read from 16 down to verse 26. Though we're going to focus mainly on verses 20 through 23. Uh, Speaking of the disciples in verse 16, remember this is a context of prayer. In the context of prayer of Jesus to the Father. He says... They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. As I said, there's a lot there. We'll barely scratch the surface of it, really. But I do want to pull out from here, for us this morning, a theology of Christian unity. A theology of Christian unity. And the first point that I would note is this. That Christian unity is patterned after the unity of the Father and the Son. Though it is not equal to it in every way. Maybe another way to say that is this, that Christian unity is patterned after divine unity, but again, is not equal to it in every way. 
This is the point that Jesus is making here in the passage I just read. Now, as you again, you're probably familiar with this, but just by way of reminder, Jesus is here in the context of prayer to the Father. It is his prayer for his people on behalf of his people as our great high priest, as our mediator, as our redeemer. It is the last words recorded for us in John before he is betrayed by Judas. So it is the end of the evening, the last evening that he spends with his disciples as he soon is headed to the cross to be crucified and provide the grounds of our salvation. And he's praying specifically for his disciples who are really have a unique role to be sure, but also representative of those who would come after them. In other words, he makes this clear that That he's praying not only for the disciples, but also for all who would believe in his name. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And then he says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. He says, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So in other words, he's... He's praying specifically here for his people, specifically for his people who were given to him as an act of divine love by the Father to the Son. But not for these disciples alone. Again, look down at verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So the disciples have a unique role. They are going to be the ones who lay the foundation of the truth that is going to be believed about Christ and is going to be proclaimed in the world. And yet, in the, in the sense of the union and the salvation shared in Christ, they are representative of all of the church, of all of us. This then is a prayer for not only them, but it is a prayer by our mediator for you and me and every other believer as well. Now, in verse 20, what I just read, I do not ask on their behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, is marking this unity that he talks about as primarily something future to the time that Jesus prayed the prayer. So he's looking at the kind of union that we will share in Christ after he has gone to the cross, after he has been buried, after he has been raised from the dead after he has appeared to his disciples for 40 days and others, after he has ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and after he has sent the Holy Spirit. So it's, a, it's the future reality in which we now live as the people of God. It's, a, it's true of us today. It's true of us here. And he's addressing then the intimate spiritual unity, again, of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, him and the Father that we have been engrafted into. And he first introduced this thought actually back in verse 11. He said, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them in your name, that their unity may be shown to be a reality. And ultimately may be a witness to the world. He asked the Father that he would, he would protect them in his name. So this unity here, at least in verse 11, is connected to the name that God has given to Christ. What does he mean by this name? It's interesting, but a lot of people simply skip right over to this, at least commentators, and simply refer to the name, which is a true statement in and of itself, as all that represents the characters and the attributes of God. Usually, a lot of times, they give little more than a statement on that particular part. A name is everything then that's true about God, all of his, his character and his nature and his divine glory. That is, of course, how name is used very often in Scripture. It is the name that he says back in verse 6 that he manifested to those whom the Father gave him out of the world. He manifested the name of the Father to, the, who, to his disciples and therefore to us. In verse 26, we read it earlier, it is the name that he made known to them and will make known to them. And there it's associated also with the love of the Father. 
in 20, chapter 20, verse 31, we won't go through, of course, all the instances, but he, he sort of summarizes what is meant by this name uh, by saying this. And actually, this is after Thomas's great confession in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He says, John does in verse 30, therefore, many other signs were Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That you may have life in his name. So here, this name is given a particular nuance of being related to him as the Christ, the Messiah, and him who is the Son of God. And this is really the climactic statement in many ways of what John has been working towards throughout his entire gospel. To come, he says, to this realization of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That is the name that is revealed, the name in which we are to believe, the name that was given, and the name that is the means by which God protects us. So what is this name exactly? Is it the name Christ Is it the name Son of God? Is it the name Jesus? Is it the name Lord? What exactly is this name? Is it the name God? Well, I I would suggest that it's all of those things, of course. It is the name of God and all of the inherent and attendant attributes that go with the name of God. But, But he means something a little bit more nuanced than that, though not... You know, other than that, it's that plus this. Namely, that Jesus is the Son of God. By that revelation then, it is to say that the Father, the God in whom Israel hoped, is the Father of the Son. In other words, that God is not only one, but He is one consisting of three. The Father and the Son and in other places, the Spirit. Here the focus is on the Father and the Son. In other words, the name that is revealed is that God is a Father and a Son and the Son is equal to God in glory. And also, it is a name that reveals that God is not only a Father and a Son and a Spirit, but that in the Son, He is Redeemer. Of course, God was redeemer of his people in the Old Testament, Israel. But now that idea of redemption is particularly focused on the Son who is the Christ. The Son who united himself to humanity. The Son who accomplished redemption for his people. The Son in whom life is obtained, spiritual life and the forgiveness of sin. So the essence of the name here then is while including all of God's attributes and power is that God is a triune God and that he is the savior of men as manifested in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is everything that he revealed to them throughout the whole gospel of John and really the gospel, all of the gospels is that he is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is the one in whom men are to hope. This knowledge of God is of the essence of salvation and is experienced within the context of God's divine love for the Son and for those He has given to the Son. So this unity involves, at least at its heart, a confession of faith in all that God has revealed about His Son, Christ. Namely, that He is the Messiah and that He is the Son of God. Everything that the New Testament reveals about Christ is at the heart of this unity. It is a common faith in Christ. A common faith in Christ. In fact, he says that in verse 8 before he made the statement in verse 11. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and believed that you sent me. And that belief in all that Christ is and all that he's revealed is at the heart then of this unity. Now, I want to make a note here because sometimes this unity that he's spoken of, that he speaks of here in verse 11 and what we'll look at in just a minute in verses 20, or 21, particularly in 22, is confused with Jesus' statement in John chapter 10, verse 30. 
John chapter 10, verse 30. Now, I want to mention this because it's important to illustrate this uh, reality of the unity we share and yet what we don't share that is in common with Christ. Now, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus made the well-known statement, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And after he said that, in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. It wasn't the first time that they sought to do that, and they understood his claims to be a claim of deity. And Jesus said, for why do you stone me? For a good work? And they said in verse 33, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And so they clearly understood here, as they did in other places, particularly in John and in the Synoptic Gospels, that Jesus was making a claim to divinity, to divinity, to being equal to God. Now, because of this statement and because of Jesus' statement in his prayer in John 17, there's been some wrong ways that this has been understood. One, and we'll mention this a little bit later, but I'll note it here, is to say that the unity of which Jesus is speaking here has nothing to do with a statement about his divine nature, but only refers to the kind of unity that he shares by being in complete harmony with the will of God. In other words, a fancy way to refer to that would be functional unity. In other words, it's by what Jesus does. In other words, to say he's one with the Father because he obeys the Father. He's one will with the Father. His desires are one with the Father and so on and so forth. And they say it's really not a statement about his divine nature. In other words, the Jews misunderstood it. And for Christians to use that as a statement about his divine nature is a misuse of the text. In fact, uh, interestingly, Nabel Koreshin, who is with the Lord now, but who... God used mightily before he took him to be, come home to him. In his book, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus, makes that very point in relation to this verse in John chapter 10. He records there, and this is before he came to a saving knowledge of Christ, a discussion that he had with a Christian woman or a Christian girl who was sharing the gospel with him. And Jesus, or Jesus, uh, Nabel, excuse me, uh, questioned this girl, and he said to her, where does it say in the scriptures that Jesus is God or that Jesus says, I am God? And then he notes in the book uh, this. He said, Betsy, that's the girl's name, thought for a moment. She didn't seem too troubled, but it was clear to me that she couldn't remember him saying it. After an uncomfortable moment passed, which she seemed totally comfortable with, she said, in John's gospel, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. That was the one I expected her to go for, and I was ready. Yes, yes, but also in John, Jesus prays for his disciples to be one, just as he is one with the Father. So he clarifies exactly what he means by one. He means unified in spirit and will. If he meant one, as in one being, wouldn't he be praying for his disciples to be one in the same way? He's not praying for his disciples to all become one being, is he? That was Nabel as a Muslim apologist to this Christian girl. In other words, then saying what I just mentioned is that all he's talking about here is that he happens to be doing the will of the Father. He's one in his purpose and his intent and his will with the Father. So if he's saying more than that, wouldn't that be applying or saying that believers enter into some way the same kind of divine nature that Jesus had himself? And of course, that's not true. But I want to use that idea to make this first point. Namely that what we do share in our unity as believers is patterned after divine unity, but is not equal to it in every way. First of all, let me just note here in John chapter 10, verse 30, that say, and make this statement that Jesus is affirming his singular will with the Father, but he's doing more than that. He's also affirming directly and clearly his divine nature. His divine nature. That he is equal to the Father as God. First of all, I would just note broadly that this is the very argument that John has been making from the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being 
or nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, he is the agent of creation. He has eternally existed in fellowship with the Father. And that is, of course, what he's leading to in Thomas's great confession, my Lord and my God, in what we read earlier in chapter 20, that this is what everything is written is pointing in that direction, that he is the Son of God. And that's something that's been stated over and over in many ways throughout this argument. But secondly... Jesus' relationship to with the Father and His work presupposes something more than simply obedience. It actually requires this statement that Jesus be equal to God also in nature. Let me give you just a few examples of this or why I make that statement. First of all is this, and in the context of chapter 10... Jesus begins by saying that the sheep hear his voice as the voice of God. As the voice of God. He says the sheep follow him because in verse 4, they know his voice. They know his voice. He says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. These are prerogatives of God alone. It says in verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. This is God language. This is reflecting God's own relationship with his people in the Old Testament as the God of his people, the shepherd of his people. Jesus is here saying that The relationship he has with his sheep in this work of God is equal to the nature of God himself. He says, secondly, it requires the nature of divine nature in Jesus because he is the means of the salvation and spiritual life for his sheep. Again, let me read this in chapter 10. He says, I am the door. Anyone who enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. He says that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. They may have life and have it abundantly. He says in verse 11 that he lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He says the same thing in verse 17. I lay down my life So that I may take it up again. In other words, Jesus is by his own authority that he shares, though from the Father, shares with the Father, able to lay down his life, and his life is the means of salvation and spiritual life for all of the people of God. In other words, there is no spiritual life outside of his life. That requires that he then be equal. With God. No mere created being, certainly no man, could say that. It is to say this then that the work of God in salvation requires requires that Christ be of a divine nature with the Father. Requires it. He says again that the sheep belong to Jesus as a gift of the Father. Therefore, Jesus equally owns the sheep with the Father. Look what he says again in verse 28. I will give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Yes, he is one in will with the Father and working towards the salvation of his people. And yet the work that he does in the salvation of his people being the voice of God to them, being the means of their salvation, being the source of their spiritual life, being a gift that he having ownership of them equal with the Father. All of these works that Christ is doing with the Father require that the nature of Christ be more than a mere man. In fact, that he be God. So they clearly understood this rightly. So yes, there is a functional unity here. In other words, there is a unity of will and purpose and so forth that Jesus has. But it's more than that. It's more than that. He he does works that require that he be God. And we won't turn there, but he makes the same argument in chapter 5, another time when they wanted to stone him. And there he even makes this statement that 
He has this shared glory and power with the Father so that all may honor him even as they honor the Father. So Jesus says even there that he shares in the divine glory. I mean, if any created being said that, that would be blasphemy and they would have been right to stone him. We would have been right to participate in the stoning of Jesus if in fact he were a mere man making these statements. So when Jesus says this, he is declaring that he is one in the, with the purposes of God, but he's declaring something more than that, that he is equal to God. He participates in God's work as one who shares all things with the Father and is equal with him in power and with glory. Now, it is also to say then that the unity that Jesus speaks of in John 17 is still patterned after that unity that he declares in chapter 10, verse 30. While there is a distinction with Jesus because of the work that he does and the place that he has as preeminent and as equal with the Father and sharing in all of these things, there is yet also a pattern in the life of Jesus and his own relationship with the Father that we do share in. Let me give you some of the ways that it's similar. Some of the ways that it's similar. And again, we're going to get to the practical parts of this next week. We're just laying a broad foundation for it here. It's similar in this way. The unity that Jesus displayed in the will of the Father for the salvation of those given to him was a display of perfect obedience to the will of the Father. Perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And in that way, we share in this unity, this idea of oneness He says in verse 18 of John 17, you could flip back. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So we share a a unity. We share a, a singularness of purpose and will and desire. Even that the son displayed in his obedience to the father. We share that together as the people of God. We share in that will of the father to do his will. And to be ambassadors, spokesmen as it were. For the glory of Christ in the gospel. We share in his mission of salvation. So we share in that equally. As those who are redeemed in the son. We share in his mission to the world. We are united with him in that way. We're united to him in that way. And we reflect this glory as well. In this way. In that though the father and son are distinct persons. Yet they are united together in this one work of salvation. In a similar way, the church, though made up of individuals, as we read through all the metaphors and descriptions, are singular in their work of being witnesses to the person of Christ. To the person of Christ. Though the unity of the church is made up of many persons, they are one in as much as they are bound to the truth of Christ. And the unity of believers also, even more profoundly than that, is is marked by a similar spiritual fellowship with the Father and Son that that the Son shared himself. Look at what he says in verse 20 of John 17. He says, I do not ask, or verse 21. He says that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He says it again in verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. He's using language here of spiritual reality, intimate spiritual closeness and reality and unity. Let me just give you one verse. You don't have to turn there. In John chapter 14, he says something similar. And again, in the context of the coming of the Spirit and in their obedience to Christ. A lot to say here, but let me just show you some similar language. He says in verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In verse 23 he says, 
in answering Judas, not Iscariot, one of the disciples, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. And even there, he's speaking of this kind of spiritual reality and deep fellowship that believers have with the Father through the Son. And the reality of this fellowship is both proven and built up and increased through obedience to Christ as both Messiah and God. Here he says that there is this spiritual reality of our union with Christ that is reflective of Jesus' own relationship with the Father. Even as the Father is in Him and He is in the Father, so we are in Christ. That we might be in this deep, intimate, spiritual fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So in those senses, what we have in our unity is similar to what Christ shared with the Father as the Son. We have a similar unity in our purpose in obedience to the Father. We have a similar unity in our profession of faith and our acknowledgement of Christ as Messiah and Lord. We share with Christ, as He did with the Father, a deep inward spiritual unity that is marked by love and is marked by obedience. But what's different? What is different? And these I'll just mention briefly. First of all, what's different is this. The unity of the Father and the Son, which is the pattern after which we are, our own unity is, uh, follows, the unity of the Father and the Son is an eternal unity and is a prior unity. In other words, it has a place of preeminence and priority. Let me just give you a few places uh, for this. He says in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And he says in verse 26, at the end of the verse, So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And he says again in verse 24, if you go up, that the glory that we'll gaze upon in the eternal state is the glory which the Father had given to him because he loved him before the foundation of the world. So the unity that we have as believers is dependent on this prior eternal unity of the Father and the Son. It's the unity of believers is patterned after this eternal unity. It is, in fact, flowing out of that unity. But the love that the Father had for the Son, the unity that the Son has with the Father, the glory that He has with the Father is something that He's had from all eternity. That's always been His. It is necessary and it is by nature. And those are important ideas. In other words, Jesus could never be out of union with the Father because God is one and God is a Father and a Son and a Spirit. And here we we do pick up on those words of John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. The Father could not accomplish salvation apart from the work of the Son. The Father could not be a Father if it were not for the reality of the Son. The Son would not be a Son if it were not for the reality of the Father. There would be no creation if the Father had not created through the Son, and on it goes. So there is a priority with Jesus as eternal and preeminent because He is the eternal Son of God. And that way it is utterly distinct from our own unity that we share. Because ours is, came into being and ours is from the source of the Son's unity with the Father. And the unity of the Father is also, as I mentioned, essential because of His deity, and it remains distinct from the unity of believers. Let me just briefly note this in one verse. Here he says in verse 22, "...the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one." But notice the distinction he makes in verse 23. Or actually in verse 24. Father, or we could say in verse 23 too. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity. That the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. This is verse 24. So that they may see my glory which you have given to me. For you loved me 
before the foundation of the world. And the important thing to note here is this, is that even within this unity that Jesus prays for, for his people, a unity that reflects his own unity with the Father, he maintains a distinction, and it is ultimately a creator-creature distinction. He says again in verse 24 that he desires that they see his glory. His glory. Now the importance of this is this. That a wrong way that these have been understood is that there's some kind of absorption into the divine nature. That we are divine in the same way that Jesus is divine. That we participate in this God-likeness that Jesus himself, in the same way that Jesus himself was God and man. But that's not what John is saying here. Again, notice, one, is that there is an eternal distinction, both in the fact that the love and the glory that Jesus has shared with the Father has always been and is necessary, and secondly, that in the eternal state and now, Jesus is the object of faith and the object of of what we as believers glory in. In other words, we participate as creatures in his glory, but it is his glory and not our own. It is his glory as the Christ and as the Son of God. His glory is what he has eternally shared with the Father. He says, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, it is the glory that we will gaze on in Christ is a glory that's consistent with his glory as God the Son. And yet, there is another glory that he has added on, and that is also now the glory of Redeemer, which is consistent with his eternal glory as the Son of God, as the Son of the Father. And so here then he says that is the glory that even when all of his gathered people are together with him in heaven... That we will gaze upon. It will be the delight of our soul. It's what Jesus longs for them to see. He says so that they may see my glory. Which you have given me. Before the foundation of the world. Because the father loved him. Before the foundation of the world. So. There is a distinction. We're not absorbed into some kind of oneness with God. That's not at all what he's saying. In fact. He's simply saying that. The Father and the Son have eternally loved one another and eternally shared this delight in one another. Jesus has eternally shared a glory and a love with the Father that then, by virtue of his uniting himself with humanity, laying down his life on behalf of his people, rising from the dead and sending the Spirit, we now get to participate with what is his by right and ours by grace, namely, life shared life and shared fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So the unity is relational. It also has a spiritual reality. Now I want to mention this just briefly. It also has a visible reality to it as well. So one is simply because we are in union with the Son. To use the words of Paul, our life is hidden with God in Christ or with Christ in God. But it also has a visible reality. What is the purpose of this unity? He says here, so that the world, in verse 21, may believe that you sent me. So the world may believe that you sent me. He says the same thing uh, at other places in the, in the prayer. It, is, it has an, ultimately an evangelistic intent, an evangelistic intent. The unity that we show as believers in Christ, the unity that we have together with Christ, in proclaiming His name, in loving Him, and participating in His salvation, is a witness to the world, and it is a visible reality to it. Let me note here, well, we already did that, it's the visible, it's the, the world may believe that you sent me. This is, in fact, a powerful argument of the Roman Catholic Church. It's a very powerful argument of the Roman Catholic Church. This idea of being the one church of God. That's what they view all Protestant churches as being schismed, as it were, separated as defectors from the one true church of God. And so they would look at a passage like this and say, See, there is only one church. There is only one church of God. 
This is the historical church, they would argue, and therefore to not be a part of the Roman Catholic Church is to be outside of God's people. It is to be outside of the true church. The true church. The problem with that, and I'll just note this briefly, is this. One is it's built on a false premise. It's built on a false premise. It's built on not only a false premise, but a false gospel. In other words, the unity that Jesus is speaking of here, and this is an important point, is not essentially an organizational unity, an institutional unity, though it has a visible reality to it. It is first a spiritual unity. In other words, he's not saying that there needs to be one church structure from every Christian in the world. That's not what he's saying here. And to apply it that way is to miss the point. In fact, because of the falseness of the gospel that it's built on or became built on or that developed within what became Roman Catholicism, that was in fact not a church at all. That's why when Martin Luther was excommunicated by the Pope, that was a very little thing to him. He wasn't being excommunicated by the church. He was simply being excommunicated by an institution of man. And so he felt no spiritual weight from that. Well, we didn't finish everything I wanted to, but we will wrap it up next week by just finishing this briefly, this one point in connecting with how does then this unity have to work or should it work itself out within the local church? But then I want to get to what my main goal of all of this, and namely, how does this unity work itself out in our own fellowship with one another? And we're going to look at this unity as it relates to our walking in love and to our exercise of the spiritual gifts and to our relationship with other churches. But let's now come to the Lord's table and remember our salvation with Christ and our union with Him. Father, As the men come forward, we want to quiet our hearts before you and before your table and remember that the salvation that we share is a salvation grounded in your sacrifice, grounded in your promises. It is a salvation that bears not only the present realities of forgiveness of sin, but also those future realities that are our hope of being with you and in your presence together as the one people of God forever. Warm our hearts and encourage our faith as we together, in obedience to you, follow this ordinance of partaking the Lord's Supper to proclaim your name. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.